Hey, what's up, guys? You're now listening to Devo with Uncle Theo. Today is day 62, and we're going to cover Deuteronomy 5 through 7. And I got my special guest with me again today, Mr. Dustin Mills. Thank you for being here, bro. Man, praise the Lord. My brother getting some consistency. That's what I'm talking <laughs> about. Back in the house with me. And so let's hop right into chapter 5. We've been covering some of the history of Israel and so after a brief overview of history, guess what Moses hits in chapter five? He segues into the Ten Commandments. So you get the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments repeated. And remember, they're in the Ark of the Covenant. So the second generation is hearing these again. And I'm just going to grab one of those commands where it says here that you shall not make an idol in verse eight. But it says in verse nine that you shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the father of the children on the third and fourth generation to those who hate me. And this just stuck out to me, but they're the second generation. And God is saying, if you continue to hate me, I'll extend my wrath even to the third and fourth generation. And so if I'm the second generation and I hear that command, I'm like, Yikes, this could go really badly. For not just for me, but for my children and my children's children as well. So this would be a yank on my chain to get in line and stay in line. I think this is very sober in hearing that. But the point I want to make the most here is that no matter how many times you hear the law, no matter how many times Moses emphasized what needs to be done by God, none of this will ever be accomplished without verses 28 and 29. And it says this, the Lord heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people, which they have spoken to you. They have done well in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they will fear me and keep my commandments always. And that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. And I think this is the key to do the running me, it unlocks the entire book. You need a new heart. The Lord is saying here, oh, if they had a heart to obey me. And so even in the midst of the law, even in the midst of the system, God is poking at the solution saying, you all need a new heart. Just like when the spirit came on Moses, when the spirit came on those 70 elders, this is what's needed to fully accomplish the law because we'll learn about later in Galatians that the law is just basically a tutor anyway. It hems you in, it protects you, and it's your tutor to teach you about what you truly need. And that's a new heart. I just wanted to ask you, bro, what do you think about God name dropping the solution right in the middle of the problem? It's like he gives these nuggets every now and then about what's really needed in order to make this thing happen. No, it's just, it's an amazing thing when we can see that God's plan never changed in between the Old Testament and New Testament. Amen. He's always had one plan, and that plan's always been uh, sending his son as a savior uh, for wicked men who need new hearts. Amen. And that's it. That's the answer. And we roll into chapter six with that answer. And we get, I would say this is probably one of the most famous passages for any Jew today. Uh, in Israel, they, it's called the Shema. Well, this is, will be known by every Jewish person 
today if they take their faith seriously. And so it leads into that in verse one, it says, now this is the commandment. And it's interesting that they're singular showing that how important this is and the statutes and judgments, which the Lord, your God has commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land, which you are going over to possess it so that you and your sons and your grandsons might fear the Lord, your God to keep his statutes and his commandments and the Shema. And the reason you will hear the word Shema a lot, the word here in Hebrew is Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And immediately it goes into the key. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. Jesus takes this as the greatest command. He combines this verse here with a verse in Leviticus on loving your neighbor and said, on these two hang all of the law and prophets. And the reason I say it's like God drops bread comes. Look at that. We can piece together a verse from Deuteronomy and a verse in Leviticus. They're two books away. They're not connected to each other. And by putting those two together, you can understand the entire motivation of the Bible and now the motivation of the Christ, Christian life. Isn't that powerful just to think about hermeneutics and why we should study the Bible carefully? Because God is leaving breadcrumbs all over the place and we can find him. No wonder he says, if we search for him with all of our heart and seek him, we'll find him. It says that the Lord, our God is one. And this argues for what we've been talking about, monotheism, and not just monotheism, but the unity of God is found here as well. If you're looking at it from a Trinitarian worldview, but obviously their theology wouldn't have been as developed in that framework. So this is mainly monotheism being presented here. And this gives a lot of people problems <laughs> when you're talking about how can you have one God and three at the same time. So what about you, brother? Like when you think about this one, three dynamic, have you ever had people push back against you saying, how can you have one God and three at the same time? Your math isn't adding up. Yeah, no, it's interesting because a lot of cults, they believe that they actually use this verse. I know that the uh, Hebrew Israelites, they use this verse as saying that the God is one. And I can see how it can, can be confusing, but we have the rest of the Bible. Absolutely. Amen. And then the next step, after knowing that the Lord your God is one, the first thing under the Shema is we're to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. How do you love God with all of your heart, soul, and mind, and strength? He breaks it down. First, these words shall be on your heart. This is what you brought up before that you should have a good memory bank because the Old Testament uses the word heart, but that's really mind and the center of our being, which is our mind and our heart, that area that controls everything that connects to our emotions. And so we're to plant the word of God there. And not only that, we should, verse seven, teach them diligently to our sons and talk to them. When you check this out, bro, when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up, when we put all of that together, how much of the day does that accomplish? Probably 24 hours. <laughs> That's exactly right. 
24 hours is how we're to teach and train our children. Actually, this verse here is one of the main verses that spurred on homeschooling because when people start seeing by faith that they should train their children all the time, they start weighing their options. They say, am I going to give that to somebody else or am I going to take that on that responsibility myself? And so you see a lot of convictions for homeschooling being birthed out of this verse here. And that's a beautiful conviction. And even if that isn't your conviction, your conviction needs to be that I'm the primary educator of my children. And if I get assistance with that, that's exactly what it is. It's assistance. I'm not going to abdicate that responsibility to somebody else. And so what I like to say is you need to be the primary educator of your children and you need to be responsible for who you allow to assist with that. What else should you do? Verse eight is number three. You shall bind them as signs on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. And obviously some Jews took this literary, literally with the uh, phylacteries and they'll have, they would even have the box on their head with their memory verses. But this is metaphorical uh, for us to do what you said, have a good memory bank, keeping the word in our heart all the time so we can call it to memory, just like Jesus did in the wilderness with Satan. This has been convicting lately. Memory bank, memorization, remembering the word of God, not forgetting has been coming up over and over again in my life. And I think that's very important that we start to take that seriously because one thing about getting old is your memory starts to fade. So in these years, these formidable years where you still have a sharp memory, I think it behooves you to commit as much to memory as possible so you can serve the Lord well in your later years. And that's not even me picking on someone older. Like they still have time or you still have time as well. What are your thoughts on that, man? I will memorize the scripture. And I even go so far as saying it's a sin to forget because when you forget, you disobey and it leads you to sin. No, absolutely. I think about this. So when we come to Christ and we're, we're new in Christ, what are we filled with? All them old rap songs, all them old movies. That's good. We need to replace that. Yeah. We need to fill our minds. Bible uh, says in Romans, we need to renew our minds. How do we do that? We fill it with the word of God. And the more we intake and the more we hide God's word in our heart through memorization, through studying, it becomes second nature to think about it and meditate on it and reach back in that memory bank. But when we're not doing that, and when we go continue back going into the world for most of our entertainment or most of our anything else that we do, it's going to be hard to have it in your memory bank. No, for sure. And just to further argue the point that you're making, when you go down to verse 11 at the end, it says, you'll go into cities that you did not build and houses full of good things which you did not feel and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied, then watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord, your God. And this is very potent because this tells us satisfaction hurts our memories. Satisfaction causes us to forget God. And so no wonder God loves trials because if I'm God and I want you to remember me and I know that satisfaction is going to cause you to forget me, what's one of my best friends 
to bring in your life. It's Mr. Trial. When Mr. Trial comes in, you, it reminds you who God truly is. And man, you say, we say dogs are a man's best friend. I want to coin the term that trials are God's best friend. Cause when he brings them into our lives, it, it shakes us up to get us to trust and truly focus on him. And not to say God won't give us satisfaction. He does it all the time, but we just need to be very careful. What about you when you see that the sin that satisfaction could bring, the sin of forgetfulness? Man, something that something that you just said a second ago made me think about the trials. So trials are twofold. Uh, the same, uh, one person could get the same trial. He'd be a Christian and it makes him run to God. Mm. But the unbeliever who may be artificially walking with Christ, uh, just being doing nominal Christianity, when he's hit with the same trial, he's going to curse God and run. Mm. And he's revealing his heart. Like in John chapter six, where Christ was doing, he revealed those people's heart that they were looking for bread uh, instead of him. Mm. And I think that, it, and that's good too, really, because they have a chance to repent of it when they see what they're, what's truly in their heart. Man, that's good, man. Forgetting is a form of hate. It's apathy. It's saying, mm -hmm. hey, I don't care. I hear it and it sounded good, but I don't care to remember it. We move into number five. What's number five in verse 16 uh, on how to love God? We move into the next one in verse 16. You should not put the Lord your God to test. You tested him at Massa, and you should diligently keep his commandments. And so we shouldn't test God. Why shouldn't we test God? You don't test your superior. How many privates do you know testing generals? How many uh, Daniel sons are testing Mr. Miyagi? You don't test your boss. You don't test your leader. You learn from them. And so that's one of the highest forms of disrespect for me to come to God and say, I'm going to test you and make you prove to me that you're God. That sounds like somebody else that actually tried to get Jesus to do that. And so let's not make that sin. It says here in verse 18 that you should do what is right before the Lord and you will drive out all of your enemies from before you. And so remember, this is how to love God. Guess how you love God? Keep by his commandments. Keeping his commandments. And it says by driving out all of your enemies. Yeah. And this helps us out. God is saying, go conquer the land, go kill your enemies for me as an act of love for me. And so I'm not getting sinister with this. I'm trying to make a point. You love God by what you hate. If you love life, you should hate death and murder and abortion. If you love God and his creation of biology, you should hate every perversion of it. And so that's a really good way to think about love as well. It's not just this flowery emotion. It's a decision. And also that decision looks like loving God by what you hate. And then it says here, this is verse 20. It says, when your son asks you in time to come saying, what do the testimonies and the statues and the future judgments mean when the Lord our God commanded you? And so you train up future generations. This is how you love God. You invest in future generations, which means you must have a multi-generational vision. And we have to be on alert because Satan absolutely has a multi-generational vision. Any man that he raises up, guess who he always wants to influence? The youth. What did Hitler say? We got to get the youth. 
What does every wicked, evil man want? He wants the you, because with the you, you can keep your legacy going. Whatever I put in place today will be in effect tomorrow when I get the you, which is why the presidency isn't that effective because you only got eight years. But if I can get the you, I got a lifetime, multiple lifetimes. And that principle comes from God. You teach the you what you've learned. And then it says here in verse 24, so the Lord commanded us to observe all these statues to fear the Lord our God for our good always and for our survival as it is today. It will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all this commandment before the Lord our God, just as he commanded us. Those are the last two, to not be proud and to love God and to not be self-righteous because you find your righteousness in God. Chapter seven, he gives further warnings. He says that in, in verse two, he says, and when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them and make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. And this is what we were talking about before. Sometimes God lets you plunder, take prisoners of war. Sometimes he says you need to utterly destroy them. And a lot of times we don't need to ask why, we just need to obey. Also look at what he says in verse three, furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. And the reason why is the very next verse, for they will drive you away from me and keep you from following me and cause you to serve other gods and you will kindle the anger of the Lord. This has been the lesson the entire time when Abraham had his servant put his hand under his thigh, what did he say? Go find my son a wife from our people. Don't let him intermarry. What did Rebecca, what did she want for Jacob? For him not to intermarry. And it's the same here. What did they do in Baal Peor? Balaam got them to go into the Midianite women. And that's what fully kindled the anger of the Lord. And so God isn't doing this because he doesn't like interracial marriage. God is doing this because he told us they're going to drive you away from me. And we get to see the culmination of this with Solomon. He has 700 wives and 300 concubines. That makes both of our eyes book because we have our own uh, challenges pleasing one woman, right? And Solomon had a thousand. And it says, but the point is, it says that they drove his heart away from Yahweh. And that's the, always the problem. It says in verse six that for you are a holy people to the Lord, your God, the Lord, your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. And this is that word where election comes from. It's you're a chosen people and God tells them why he chose them. He says, the Lord has not set his love on you nor chose you because you were more in number than any other people. You were the fewest out of all people, but because God loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Like how beautiful is that to hear from your God that you didn't choose me, I chose you. And I didn't choose you because it was something good in you. I actually chose you because you were fewer in number. You weren't that many people. 
I took Abraham, turned him to 70 and turned them into a great nation. Wouldn't that humble when you're sitting before Moses hearing this saying, man, it's really not anything in me that made God choose me. He set his affection on me for his glory because he loved me. How would that stimulate you as an Israelite at that time? Man, that's an amazing thing. It makes me think about the New Testament and the rec uh, requirement for salvation is recognition that we aren't the best, right? Amen. Recognition that we're sinners. God has made a way for sinners to be saved. And who did Jesus come to? He came to the least, the last, and the lost, didn't he? That's it, bro. Let's ride out reading this verse in verse 9. It says, Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousand generation to those who love him and keep his commandments, but repays those who hate him to their faces, bro. He's bold. He doesn't, he doesn't talk behind your back. He doesn't DM you on IG or Facebook. He doesn't have to get Twitter fingers, as they say. God says he will come directly to you and pay you back to your face and destroy you. And he will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. And that's basically how the chapter rides out from this luncheon pad into the promises of God for the rest of the chapter. And you can enter into those promises if you walk in these things. And so our encouragement today is to walk in these things so that you can fulfill the Shema. You can love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do that well and enter into the promises and blessings of God. Anything else before we ride out? Man, just thankful that we have a, a Savior and a God who's got things figured out. Amen. Well, you all take care, and we'll catch you next time when we cover Day 63, chapters 8 through 10.